Welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with entrepreneurs and experts working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. In this episode, we speak with Richard Harrison, CEO of Smart Power Myanmar, a not-for-profit organization working to accelerate the spread of decentralized renewable energy solutions in Myanmar and transform the long-term economic potential of millions of people currently without access to electricity. Our conversation covers the significant potential for decentralized energy in Myanmar, the importance of providing financing alongside infrastructure development, and the impact that electrification can have for rural communities in Myanmar. We hope you enjoy this episode. Richard, welcome to Distributing Solar. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You are currently CEO of Smart Power Myanmar and living and working in Yangon, but originally, if I'm not mistaken, from the UK. How did you find your way to Myanmar and specifically to working in the energy sector? Well, I've been living in Myanmar now for almost 10 years in different capacities, working in Myanmar and, and, and working in the development space, traveling between the private and the public sectors. The transition from working in a kind of more nonprofit environment, which is where I began in public health, in fact, helping to start one of the first HIV prevention programs in the country, supporting tuberculosis compliance programs and setting up a large network of private general practitioners, which is today the largest network of GPs in the country, gave me a, a deep understanding of how this country functions and what its challenges are. Uh, and over the years, I have transitioned into different roles, expanding the, the work I've been doing in development. I uh, became the country director for a large NGO in Myanmar called PACT. And so my career in Myanmar has spanned 10 years, but has really transitioned a huge number of different sectors as I've sort of been following the, the sectors or the impact areas that I personally believe will have the largest uh, positive net impact on, on the lives of average households in Myanmar. Great. And to begin with, can you start by setting the scene and tell us more about Myanmar as a country from an economic and political standpoint, and also more about its overall energy system? Myanmar is a country with a similar population to the UK, something in the region of somewhere between 50 and 60 million people. And uh, it's broadly covering a large swathe of, of Southeast Asia, all the way from the, the Himalayas in the north, all the way down to almost the bottom of Thailand, where the two countries share a, a border um, all the way down on the Andaman Sea. So it's a very large country uh, and uh, ge geographically very diverse. You have a sort of a hilly, mountainous area that spans the outskirts of the country. The southern and western sides of the country are, there's thousands of kilometers of coastline. And in the center, you have what's often called the dry zone and the delta area, which are the sort of flatter areas where you have the bulk of the country's agriculture taking place. Uh, you also have a very, very diverse population. There are dozens of ethnic groups. You have a, a dominant ethnic group, the Bama, who generally occupy the center of the country. Uh, and then lots and lots of different languages and dialects that span uh, all the way from uh, Rakhine State, all the way around the edge, back down through the eastern side of, of the country, through Laos and, and Laos and China. So you have, you have this incredibly diverse country. It's really a, a complicated country to manage. And of course, has a very, very long history, uh, a very diverse history. Uh, and sadly, in the last 40 or 50 years, also a, a history of conflict on many different fronts. And so the country is in the process of, of, a, of a long-standing peace negotiation process, which continues to this day and you know, probably will continue for some time. So it's, it's a country that has many different facets, uh, and that makes it quite... Uh, a challenging place to work because in order to solve development problems here, you have to be quite adept at understanding the local context. You have to be able to work with state governments as well as district authorities at uh, a very, very large scale across the whole country. And of course, all of that is stitched together with, with the current you know, political structures at the, at the union level or the center 
where there are you know all sorts of different relationships that have to be managed so you you have you have a complex geopolitical environment to work in here politically and economically of course myanmar is emerging from a very very long period of economic stagnation and since about 2013-2014 has made extraordinary steps to try to unlock the economy and open the economy up. Of course, everyone's aware of the transition to a, um, a democratic government a few years ago. And that's been coupled with attempts to take baby steps to liberalize the economy, to improve the way that investment laws are written and deployed, the way the banking sector is governed and allowed to operate to provide more opportunities for multinational companies to participate in Myanmar's economy, to employ people, to increase the labor force, to increase the economic potential of the country. All of those things have steadily added to the potential for Myanmar. They are very baby steps, as I said earlier. There's a long, long way to go. The country has very significant developmental challenges in front of it, mainly because you have a country that, A, has been starved of international finance uh, and local finance for going on 50 years. But also you have a predominantly rural country. The estimates range between 70 and 80 percent rural, which is very rare in the world today, where most countries are predominantly becoming urbanized. You still have a very rural population here. And rural villages in Myanmar really are seriously underdeveloped. Most have no access to reliable electricity. Most have no reliable access to safe water. And of course, subsistence living at the rural level continues to be part and parcel of daily life. Uh, and that is really talking about the vast majority of the population of the country. So you have a few urban centers that uh, are really driving the, the national economy, but the export markets remain well below their potential. In terms of resources, it is well known that Myanmar is incredibly rich, has incredibly high potential, with significant gas reserves, significant oil reserves, lumber in terms of uh, precious metals and rare metals. In terms of its agricultural base, Myanmar is incredibly rich. In fact, uh, 100 years ago, Myanmar was the world's largest rice exporter. It supplied the world with rice. Today, uh, rice exports are a fraction of that. So there is, a, there is a, a huge amount of potential in the country that is beginning to get unlocked again. And that presents us with a unique set of challenges and opportunities in the energy sector. Fantastic. And can you tell us more then about the current state of the energy system, the rates of electrification across the country, and what are the real challenges facing the country as they try to move to 100% electrification? The, the story of Myanmar's electricity sector uh, really can be divided into two pieces. Uh, on the one hand, the Myanmar electricity sector is often described as uh, working well below its potential. Just 50% of the country is connected to the grid, and it is likely that even part of that is not, in, not involving full connections all the way down to the household level. The, the best available estimates suggest that something like 26 million people do not have reliable access to electricity. We know that about 4 million households live off-grid, have absolutely no power, and about 2.5 million households are relying on expensive and polluting diesel or solar home systems, which of course do not enable economic productivity, although they do provide other social educational benefits. What we're seeing in Myanmar is an estimated 17% growth in demand per year. So you have this very significant growth in demand happening as the economy tries to take off and the new businesses are starting. The drawdown in electricity is becoming more significant, particularly, obviously, in urban areas. But there isn't a commensurate investment in, in generation capacity. So you have a disconnect between the demand and the supply, which is presenting the country, obviously, with a series of challenges and opportunities. The other side of the story that one could tell is that from a very low base due to you know, the, the last 50 years of, of the, the way that the country was being managed, 
that Myanmar has in fact uh, done a great job in trying to come back from a very, very difficult situation where just a fraction of the country was electrified several years ago. The new generation needed by 2030 is estimated at around 13 gigawatts in order to meet this climbing demand. So the question that we need to be asking ourselves is what is to be done about meeting that need and how do we address that? And where smart power really seeks to play a meaningful role is in helping to create a narrative for solving that particular problem. And so we've spent a great deal of time and and energy working with key players in the electrification sector in Myanmar, both on-grid and off-grid, in order to better understand what is the right energy mix and how do we intervene in the most intelligent way to be able to get the country to a state where as many people are connected as possible. There is a place for off-grid electrification in Myanmar at a grand scale, but there's also a place for the grid to continue providing electrification. After all, 60-70% of the country is already receiving electricity from hydroelectric power. Uh, We're not necessarily arguing that the whole country should be solar-powered, What we're arguing is that the right energy mix for Myanmar's context to take us from 50% to 100% gives us this this incredible, almost once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get it right. Great. And it seems as though Smart Power Myanmar's work is really focused in providing some of the research, the background work, the information to make that assessment and make that recommendation Can you tell us more about the type of work that's done by Smart Power Myanmar and in particular how that is manifested in, for example, the Energy Impact Fund or the Applied Energy Lab? So the key to Smart Power Myanmar is that we we don't work alone and we work in an ecosystem of key players. And our role is really to try to unify those players, whether they be in the private sector or the public sector whether they be financing institutions or whether they be mini-grid developers or village electrification committees uh, or state-level ministers. We work with a very, very wide variety of groups who don't normally work together to solve this kind of problem. And what we try to do is to unify that. The key to that is really understanding the context that we're working in. So research and data are incredibly important to our mission. And indeed, to being able to provide the right kind of advice uh, to government, to to being able to provide the right kind of advice and and de-risking solutions to investors, uh, but also to make careful decisions about practical things, like where do you site your grid? And that really needs to be evidence-based. So yes, to your question, research and data are at the center of the way that we think and the way that we act. What we felt was an opportunity that hadn't been met yet was to try to size the potential scale of the off-grid market. If we were to better understand the potential market size, this was our theory, we would be able to inform the government about where it could be heading in terms of decentralized energy. Uh, We could also go to investors and, and, and clearly point to them This is the potential scale we could be talking about, and this is the kind of investment that's required. So our our role we see as both informing and influencing how how decisions are made in country, uh, but also trying to attract that finance from outside, not only finance, but of course also external players who may wish to be power producers in the country. And what are the barriers holding back a faster pace of electrification in Myanmar? And where does Smart Power Myanmar focus its efforts with regards to overcoming some of these barriers? So the overarching strategy that Smart Power Myanmar has taken over the two years since we were established has been to clearly delineate what the key barriers and strategic imperatives are for electrification in Myanmar. On the mini-grid side, we identified the key barriers as including the, the high cost of development and the small project size the lack of productive use and the tendency towards inefficient operations and the need for improved central planning and improvements around the ways that subsidies are designed for maximum impact and maximum sustainable uh, business viability. On the grid extension side, really a need for 
greater expertise in helping to enable the right kinds of policies and developing long-term plans that match the reality of Myanmar's uh, population and its geographies. Uh, and of course, it's available financing for that scale-up. And finally, lack of private sector market participation and competition and accountability. So these are the six key barriers that we've identified. And, and from that, we developed a list of what we would argue are the most important strategic imperatives, reducing costs, increasing plant utilization, uh, improving the way that procurement is done, particularly in the mini grid market uh, as a way to reduce costs, finding ways and, and developing mechanisms to reduce risks and encourage private sector participation and look at ways in which subsidies can be better designed for the long term. On the grid extension side, uh, looking at continuing tariff restructuring, tariffs need to be cost reflective and more equitably spread. Government did take very positive steps in that regard in the second half of 2019 with a significant tariff increase, the first in many years. Next, regulatory reforms. A separate regulatory agency might help to develop regulations that would enable private investment in the energy sector to take place. Also, quality procurement, open, transparent, best value procurement from private sector companies using, using international best practice. A more provocative strategic imperative that we've put forward for discussion has been also ways in which we could potentially look at unbundling and liberalizing the energy market in the long term. And covering the whole energy sector, access to finance remains one of the biggest problems and biggest barriers, all the way from the ability of mini-grid companies to be able to access affordable commercial bank financing on, on, on reasonable terms, to consumers and consumer ability to be able to access affordable finance for inputs, but also for upgrades and conversions of their existing diesel-powered machinery. So in order to address these barriers and, and, and to find uh, effective ways to be able to solve for these strategic imperatives, Smart Power Myanmar has established a kind of a three-pronged approach. One is to focus on influence and thought leadership to help create a narrative that spans the off-grid space and the on-grid space. Second is to invest significantly in data and business intelligence, both to make sense of available data, but also to analyze that data and produce insights that decision makers and investors can use. And this includes, for example, mapping uh, of existing infrastructure in Myanmar and economic potential in Myanmar and overlaying that with agricultural productivity in different areas, for example. None of this information is available in one place. And this is something that Smart Power is taking a role in with others. Thirdly, and this is probably one of the areas where we're most significantly involved at the moment is in uh, financial services and technical services. And in financial services, providing innovative solutions or perhaps even taking proven commercial financing solutions, but transplanting them in new ways for new asset classes in Myanmar. And could you speak more about the work that Smart Power Myanmar has done with regards to financing? which, as you mentioned, is a critical part of accelerating the rates of electrification. Two examples of that. One is an equipment financing facility that Smart Power designed and established in the, in the last half of 2019. It's a $13.5 million equipment financing facility with commercial banks in Myanmar, commercial banks that had never provided equipment financing for this type of asset class before. And this has enabled mini-grid developers to access cash flow to be able to build sites before they get paid at the end of the construction period. So this helps to speed up project development and it increases the likelihood that developers are able to build projects simultaneously. Uh, second example I would give you is the Energy Impact Fund, which Smart Power set up in 2018 and activated in early 2019 to provide consumer financing for connections so that households could connect to the grid Remembering that 20% of the financing for mini grids has to come from communities. And oftentimes this, this amounts to about $250 per household, which is a very large amount for the average household in Myanmar. And so we provided the Energy Impact Fund to be able to help cover those upfront costs and connect as quickly as they possibly can. But the Energy Impact Fund is also used for enterprises to be able to invest in upgrading their equipment, and converting to electric motors, for example, and this could be used for things like agricultural processing, cold storage, 
potentially even irrigation solutions in the future. This fund is, is, is only capitalized at $400,000. It was designed under our Applied Energy Lab for experimental purposes to be able to prove how the application of consumer financing and enterprise financing would impact. We now have enough evidence to be able to say it has a significant impact on the ability of consumers to be able to both connect and for enterprises to be able to reduce the costs of their businesses, increase income. Uh, and we're starting to see uh, case after case where these simple upgrades have enabled both of those things to happen. And what is unique about the Energy Impact Fund is that it is not a fund which we deploy directly to consumers. We work through the village electrification committees. So we work with existing structures at the community level, which significantly increases buy-in and involvement of the, of the whole community. It also significantly helps with decision-making around how that financing should be structured, how it should be repaid. This financing is currently interest-free to smart power, but what we do is we encourage the electrification committees to charge a small interest rate so that they can cover their own costs and time and have a little bit of an extra fund for themselves to deploy for supporting electrification in the community. So we've seen this having a very significant impact in communities. The demand that we now have for that fund far exceeds the value of the fund, uh, which presents us with a, with a nice problem to have, uh, but again, it, it just speaks to the, the high potential for providing affordable, accessible financing at scale in Myanmar. Great, thank you. And can you tell us about how Smart Power Myanmar came about as an organization? Smart Power Myanmar is part of a large international nonprofit agency in Myanmar called PACT. And PACT is an integrated development organization that's involved in a variety of different areas, microfinance to livelihoods and energy and, and, and water and health. But back in 2014, we started to notice that there were changes in the way that communities were spending their resources. One of the things that we have done for 20 years religiously has been to gather data from about 15,000 villages that we operate in, basic amounts of data around expenses, about funding flows for communities so that we can see what's happening, we can spot trends. What we started to notice that energy spending had gone up by about 20%. This is going back to about 2014. And uh, we inquired a bit further and we understood that cell phones had just arrived in Myanmar, so people wanted to charge their phones. And people were starting to invest in solar home systems that were coming in cheaply from, from China and Thailand. And so they were spending more and more of their disposable income on expenditures related to electrification or the use of electrification. And in many places, these were villages with almost no other kinds of machinery that required electrification other than agro-processing. I was the country director for PACT at the time. Uh, there was um, an entrepreneur called Bertrand Picard, who, with one of his colleagues, decided to fly the solar impulse around the world to demonstrate the, the potential power of solar. And luckily for us, Myanmar was on the map and they were landing in cities all around the world. And they decided that one of their stops was going to be Mandalay. And so on the 19th of March, uh, 2015, uh, Bertrand Picard landed at Mandalay International Airport, this incredible solar aircraft that actually did eventually make it all the way around the world. And they were sponsored by a group called ABB, a Swiss engineering company, who had agreed to provide us with a, with a small amount of, of innovation funding for electrification. And partly inspired by the solar impulse and partly inspired by the data that we were gathering from, from, from our communities, we thought, well, let's see if we can use this $40,000 in, in innovation funding to see if we can provide an alternative electricity solution for some, some villages. So we built solar charging stations, very rudimentary homemade solar charging stations in four communities that we, that we worked in. And these were relatively successful, but very soon the grid came and actually made the solar charging stations defunct. But it inspired us to move into solar home systems. So we developed a local solar home system social enterprise, which was moderately successful. But we quickly realized that what, what we were seeing was that what people really wanted was they wanted electricity 
that they could use to drive machines so that they could be more productive. They wanted their businesses to run with electricity and they weren't able to access electricity. And these were shop owners who wanted to run their fridges and freezers at reasonable costs. We found thousands of shop owners who were turning their fridges off at night to save electricity, which partially defeats the object of having a fridge in the first place. We, we, we were coming across farmers who wanted to be able to process their, their produce. Uh, we were coming across aquaculture programs and, and fishing villages that wanted to be able to store their fish to get a higher price in market. We were coming across community-run lobster businesses that wanted to be able to gather and keep lobsters in oxygenated tanks for longer, again, to get significantly higher prices at the market. Case after case after case of people coming and saying, if we had electricity, this is what we would do with it. And so we made a case to our core foundation partner that we were interested in getting involved with mini-grids. Uh, we were interested in, in getting involved with electrification solutions in Myanmar. And our foundation partner was incredibly generous in supporting the, the establishment of an organization we called Smart Power Myanmar to figure out how to solve these major problems and how to unify the energy conversation, the energy narrative, and the actions behind those energy solutions. And that was, that was two years ago. That, that's essentially a long journey of how we established ourselves uh, and how we're in a quite a different place now, but still very much inspired by the same thing. And you published last year a fairly extensive report on decentralized energy in Myanmar, in which you note that decentralized energy solutions are not only the lowest cost option for Myanmar, but also the fastest route towards energy access for millions of underserved people. Can you tell us more about the findings of the report and what for you were the key takeaways? Our decentralized energy report, which was published in uh, the middle of 2019, really said uh, two things. One, it said, this is the size of the market. And the other, it said, this is what needs to be done if you really want to fulfill that potential. So what was the size of the market that we estimated? Well, we worked with Roland Berger, the international consulting company who conducted this, uh, this study on our behalf. And their estimation was that in the, in the short term, which means in the next few years, the market could probably sustain no less than about 2,500 mini grids, which would impact about 2 million people. But they went further than that. And they said that the true potential of the mini grid market could be somewhere between eight and 16,000. And they did say that 8,000 is probably more realistic than 16,000 because the further away you get from, from infrastructure, the more you're getting into places where solar home systems and other solutions might be more appropriate. We also concluded in this report, we also wanted to find out what's the economic argument for doing this. Clearly, the world is starting to understand that decentralized energy is not only a nice thing to do, it actually makes economic sense, at least in theory, as we look to the cost of, of new technology, particularly storage and panels coming down and down and down, the potential for off-grid solutions to take off becomes higher. Now, we're not quite at that point in Myanmar yet because of barriers that I'll come to later. But we do estimate that if you were to compare the cost of a connection to the grid with the cost of connecting a household to a mini grid, for example, that the cost theoretically is about 40% less if you include generation capacity calculations as well. So we started to put forward in this decentralized energy report a vision for grid-ready mini-grids would be a least cost, long-term solution for at least 8,000 mini-grids over the next 10, 15 years. We also estimated that if we went that route and if decentralized energy solutions were made possible, that could lead to something in the region of $250 million in GDP growth for the country and add 50,000 jobs in the, in the off-grid sector. This helped us to go to, to government, it helped us to go to others, and to coalesce people's understanding about the size of the market. This isn't about building 20 or 50 mini-grids as pilots. This is about building thousands of mini-grids that are going to become a reality. The next step being, how do you coexist between the mini-grids uh, and the grid? And that's, that's a question that we need to address because uh, at this particular juncture, 
these two spaces, the on-grid space and the off-grid space, are actually being managed separately in the country, one by the Ministry of Energy and Electricity, and the other by the Ministry of Agriculture. The second piece of our report was to say, well, okay, it's not enough for us to talk about what the potential is. We also need to talk about how do we get there? What is needed in order to get to that point? And so we identified what what the main barriers are, and we identified what smart power would be to these interventions. The main barriers we categorized into financial, technical, and institutional categories. And in the in the off-grid space, we concluded that the, the major problems that we need to figure out how to solve for uh, include the cost of development being way too high, and how do we increase project size? How do we get economies of scale to play in our favor? Secondly, we identified that the lack of productive use of electrification, sometimes due to poor site selection, inefficient plant utilization rates, was going to be a limiter on successful mini-grid development. It is only when we start seeing successful mini-grid business models, viable business models, that we're going to see an uptick in players coming to the table to want to invest in them. It's a hard business. The payback periods are quite long and the upfront costs are quite high. So it's not an easy undertaking by any stretch of the imagination. But the problems of productive use floated quite significantly to the top of our list of problems because in the electrification sector, almost no investment is being put into the problems of developing value chains and productive use for for micro and small businesses. So this is a very critical piece of the puzzle, how to solve for the connection between newly available electrification with private sector mini-grids, who are, in, in Myanmar's case, highly subsidized. And if we focus on on the mini-grid operators, you mentioned that it's a very difficult business at the moment. The costs are still relatively high. Financing is a challenge and the payback periods are incredibly long. Who who are the current mini-grid operators who are working in the space? And you mentioned also the the role of subsidies. Can you tell us more about who are deploying these mini-grid solutions and what the financial incentives are for them? The... The mini-grid sector here has been supported significantly over the last couple of years by the World Bank funding as part of the National Electrification Plan for Off-Grid. And approximately $20-25 million has been made available to grow the, the mini-grid space. That has been implemented by the Department of Rural Development under the Ministry of Agriculture in Myanmar. And it is probably one of the uh, unsung success stories, I think, of the mini-grid sector globally, where in just about 18 months, they have successfully signed 95 contracts for mini-grid projects around the country in quite diverse areas, all the way from the north to the south of the country, from the west to the east. And of those, about 40 or 45, I think, currently are operational. This is no mean feat in 18 months to go through the procurement process to attract, for the very first time, private Myanmar companies to take advantage of subsidies that are being offered. Now, the subsidy scheme is structured differently from the way it has been in other countries. The subsidies are quite high at 60%, but it's interestingly structured. The the 60% comes from government. But the remaining 40% is split evenly between contributions from the power companies, the ESCOs, as we call them, the electricity supply companies, and the communities themselves. So the communities put up 20% of the financing towards the development of the mini-grid. And what this has done is it's given courage to ESCOs to, in many of them, are engineering companies or they're companies that have been involved in other forms of business But they've seen this opportunity to get engaged with electrification and with infrastructure. And that has resulted in the growth of about a dozen companies that are focusing on developing out an off-grid market. Some of them are developing more projects than others. So you probably have four or five of these ESCOs that are producing sizable numbers of mini-grids. Few others are are developing just a few to get comfortable with the with the work and to establish a, a base. It is quite likely that over time the number of mini grid companies will 
settle to uh, a few that will be developing the majority of mini-grids in Myanmar. But what we're seeing is over the last 18 months, this establishment of this, this strong foundation of increasingly experienced mini-grid operators who understand how to deploy technology. And already within the space of 18 months, they are experimenting with new ways of solving problems through technology. For example, we're starting to see a shift from analog meters to smart meters so that the developers can themselves better understand what's happening at the community level, even at the household level, so that they can plan better for their uh, uh, supply of energy to those communities. And the 100 or so mini-grids that you've mentioned, which have been contracted in the last 18 months, is within the context of over 4,000 mini-grids that currently exist in Myanmar which, as you note in your decentralized energy report, almost 3,000 of which are diesel-powered, but also a further 1,600 approximately, which are powered by either hydro or biomass. Can you tell us more about these hydro mini-grids and how are they being operated at the moment? The hydro mini-grid environment in Myanmar has a very long and rich history. There are probably thousands of mini-hydro projects uh, in Myanmar. Nobody has counted them in their entirety. The locations of, the, of, of every single one of them is not known. But then many of them developed during a period where uh, there was conflict in the country and political discord. And so they developed uh, out of a community need to be able to provide electricity to their communities. And many of them have become actually quite substantial community projects, some of them are in fact profit-making and are starting to invest in themselves. But this is a separate set of initiatives from the current government-led scheme. Although what we're seeing is the beginnings of perhaps exploration into providing financing to some of those hydro companies, there's a need to homogenize the way that hydro companies and other other ESCOs in this space uh, are able to collect data so that plant performance is known. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult for the, for the decision makers who have to sign checks to be able to understand exactly what the, uh, the story is. So one of the things that is, that is happening now in the, in the hydro space is in, increasing attempts to, to better understand the uh, performance of those hydro plants. But also, of course, how do they better position themselves for financing from external parties who actually do require data to be able to make decisions? You've mentioned the on-grid and the off-grid sector of electricity and how that has to come together in the future. How is Smart Power Myanmar positioning itself or encouraging and making recommendations for that integration between the mini-grid systems that we've talked about and the grid extension of the national grid? How do you envisage that potential for, for the two grids to interact? Firstly, it's essential to talk about the energy mix. And I think Smart Power's approach to this is to say, first of all, Let's not have a polarized conversation about it's going to be all solar on one side and it's going to be all grid on the other. We need to be having a sophisticated and balanced conversation which takes into account all of these possibilities. And that enables us to bring different stakeholders to the table. One of the areas that we're intervening on quite significantly at the moment is by creating a very significant financing facility for last mile connections for the 5,000-odd villages in Myanmar that are within sight of the national grid but cannot connect due to very high upfront uh, last-mile connection charges. And the second area that we're intervening in is ensuring that the data that we're able to generate from uh, mapping work and from gathering other economic data from around the country helps us to understand exactly where the grid is going to be able to extend to within all reason, because you know, we know where the substations are, we'll know where the extent of the infrastructure can go to. And that will help us to clearly define the, the siting opportunities for decentralized electricity opportunities. That in turn helps us to get to the point where we're able to talk about the regulations that are needed to be in place for grid-ready mini-grids where you could have uh, mini-grids that feed back into the grid at some point in the future. Uh, so by having this more sophisticated conversation, where we're not just talking about mini-grids that are afraid to build close to the grid because 
they fear that at one point in the future they're going to get taken over by the grid, they already understand where the grid is going to get to, so their investments are safe and their investors are more confident to invest. That conversation in turn is happening at a national level as opposed to happening in separate places. The last mile electrification financing facility that we're developing is potentially going to be uh, the first in its asset class here in Myanmar. And it will potentially enable us to work through village committees initially in about 100 or perhaps 200 sites, but moving into thousands of sites where the connection fees are somewhere between $500 and $700 per household for that last mile connection to the, to the grid. And you started speaking about productive energy use earlier, and it would be great to discuss that now at, at greater length. Smart Power Myanmar has done a lot of work in looking at consumer financing and how you potentially use microfinancing measures to support the adoption and increase the use of energy within the residential, but also the commercial sector. Can you speak more about the potential for productive energy use and not just in making the commercial viability of these mini grids better, but also in improving livelihoods and improving development? I think one of the greatest insights from the Africa mini-grid programs, which have a, a, a longer history than the Myanmar mini-grid programs have, and I think one of the biggest insights that came out from the Rocky Mountain Institute a few years ago was that one of the single most important drivers of underperformance in mini-grids was the lack of investment in productive use. And I think that is a warning for all of us that you cannot just invest on the supply side. It's not enough to build it uh, and expect that they will come. There are estimates that suggest that by increasing productive use in active mini-grid communities can decrease the cost of electricity by 30%. And there are at least a dozen successful productive use enterprise solutions that I've seen that have demonstrated payback in less than a year. So the investment in productive use and enterprise development is not just a nice thing to do. It's actually an essential thing to do. It's the way that communities will grow their local GDP. It's the way that they connect to the value chain in more meaningful ways. For us, we set up the Applied Energy Lab to do a couple of things. Rather than say, right, we're just going to do productive use. Let's just provide funding through our energy impact fund to communities and hope that they become more productive. What we did was we set ourselves a, ser a series of hypotheses to test so that we could better understand the changes that we would see in the future based on different scenarios. The key hypothesis was that by providing affordable financing to an enterprise with the proper guidance, that we would see a cost decrease and we would see incomes rise. Very simple hypotheses, but very important to not assume that that's going to happen. And, and so we're currently testing that and some of our early research in our consumer financing and appliance financing technical notes that have been published on our website have shown that we are starting to see significant increases in income growth at the single enterprise level. We haven't yet been able to track whether that has other demonstrable impacts on the local economy or on other households. That's research that will come subsequently. But also what is happening with appliances? If we provide appliances at affordable cost, if we increase their accessibility in communities in ways that can be sustained over time, does that impact electricity usage and therefore profitability of the plant itself? So we're testing different hypotheses under our Applied Energy Lab to better understand how this impacts not only the, the viability of the plant, but of course, uh, productive use of electricity within the community. The challenge always with productive use is that it's extremely expensive because you're dealing with thousands of villages, potentially. You're also dealing with a largely agro-processing sector. That's what most communities are focused on. It's sesame or it's a green gram uh, and so on and so forth. But all of those crops need to be processed in some way. So how do you increase the processing power? How do you increase the productive use? How do you increase irrigation potential? It all requires investment. And all of that requires a value chain to justify that investment. So this is where this world becomes very closely connected to the world of international development. And of course, investments being made by the country itself in, in stimulating small enterprises, in making it easier for enterprises to access 
finance. And Smart Power Myanmar has provided a number of articles that really bring to life the impact that access to finance, as you mentioned, has for small enterprises. Could you perhaps speak about some of those business owners who have benefited from zero interest or low interest funds? And how have you been tracking the impact of financing on their businesses? We have been tracing key business owners in different places to be able to sort of see what happens to their businesses over time. One of those uh, business owners is a young man by the name of U E So, and he is an entrepreneur who lives in a place called uh, Kalamakan. And this is a village which is on an island in the southern uh, Tanyantari region of Myanmar, Kanti Island, it's called. And it's run by one of our ESCO mini-grid partners, a company by the name of Technohill. And uh, for the last 18 months or so, we've been tracking Ueso's business because uh, this island was one of the first to be electrified under the uh, subsidy program in Myanmar. And with particular interest to a couple of strategic imperatives. One was how do businesses like Ueso's business increase plant utilization rates? And what happens to Ueso's business in its own right? And what we found was that over a period of several months after providing him with consumer financing of energy impact funds, that his earnings after expense, so they went up from about $140 to just over $210. We also looked at his monthly energy bills. His energy bills were mostly coming from a, a very large diesel generator on the island. That, that was the only way that the village could obtain electricity before. He was paying about $23 a month, which is a huge amount of money in Myanmar. Uh, after converting his electricity bill per month, it's $6.5. So that's a 70% reduction in his energy bills. At the same time, his average number of customers per day went up from about 13 to about 22. So he almost doubled the number of customers. By customers, I mean the number of motorcycles that he was uh, repairing. He's a motorcycle mechanic. He owns a motorcycle workshop, established the business 10 years ago. So the, the message from him to us was that through this investment and through the access to being able to convert his machinery, which is welding machines, he's got uh, carpentry machines, all part of his business, we've transformed his business. We've transformed his ability, and he's now looking at establishing new uh, business lines in addition to what he's doing at the moment. So the, the quote that we put at the end of this story that we'll be publishing shortly, this is directly from him. He says, this is the next level of lifestyle. I can do whatever I want with electricity. And it's just this pure message of potential from this young man. I think he's in his mid-20s. And he is seeing a future where he's no longer restricted by access to energy. He's actually able to grow his business. He's traveling for the first time. He's hoping to send his future kids to, to school outside of the village, outside of the, uh, the island, which uh, in his context is a big thing. We're recording this interview in May 2020, where countries across the world are all now severely impacted by the effects of COVID-19. How has that pandemic affected Myanmar and in particular the solar industry and the participants you've been working with? Whilst we have luckily so far avoided a significant number of casualties from COVID-19, the economic impact is going to be very severe because the country has still followed public health guidance around lockdowns and, and, and restricting economic activity. Uh, what we've seen is, though, communities that have mini-grids have been able to continue to pay their bills and are continuing to be able to operate despite the difficulties. Again, the jury is still out and the evidence needs to be gathered about what happens over the long term. But in these early months of this pandemic, there has been some positive uh, ability for communities to continue to be able to access electricity. Many of the private developers themselves have, have generously reduced their tariffs and provided discounts, uh, other initiatives to try to make life easier for communities. So again, private sector collaborating with customers in ways that hopefully produce uh, positive end results, so forth. I think that what we're going to see in Myanmar is proof that more communities need more sustainable solutions to be more resilient going forward. And as we draw our conversation to close, do you have any books that you would recommend to our listeners or that have influenced your thinking about the off-grid sector? 
Well, I think one of the books that I found most inspiring is Hariri's Homo Deus in recent years, uh, talking about the human condition, because it, it makes you feel a bit more generous towards the planet. Uh, but specifically in the energy sector, I think there are two books that I would highly recommend that anybody interested in this sector read if they haven't already. One is uh, perhaps a more scientific uh, view of how energy has grown with the development of humankind with lots of facts and context and clarity and talks about en uh, energy and agriculture, energy and health and energy and the development of society. And that is Energy, a Human History by Richard Rhodes. One, one book I enjoyed, it's, it's a little older now, it's back in 2016 that uh, really helped me a huge amount, was Gretchen Backer's The Grid which again really talks about how do we reimagine the grid. And what I like about that book is that Gretchen Back is a, a cultural anthropologist. And so she comes at the problem of electrification with a, with, a, with a lens on the United States by saying, you know, this. she's describing the largest machine in the world. And how do you bring a variety of players together to be able to change how that machine works for tomorrow's world? And I found that the, the style and the approach of that book is, is really inspiring, particularly for those who are interested in the future of decentralized energy. And finally, what do you think the off-grid sector will look like in the next five years? And what are your hopes for Myanmar's electrification program over the coming years? I think over the next five years, if we're able to gather the, the, the required data and we're able to attract a sufficient amount of investment capacity for some of the larger financing facilities. I see no reason why Myanmar could not significantly increase the number of mini grids that are built to several hundred. Uh, I think that over the next few years, what we would like to get to is, is that magic number of 2,500 because we start to get to a critical mass of mini grids that provides confidence to, to the larger investors who typically wouldn't want to come into Myanmar unless they're looking at investment values of $50 million plus. Uh, so we do need to be getting up to scale. So I would hope to say in the next five years that we're starting to approach the scale that would uh, significantly in increase confidence in the country to invest. So I, I'm very optimistic. I'm optimistic that cost of developing projects in Myanmar will come down as, the, as global costs come down. Uh, I have high hopes that we will see in the next five years a set of regulations that enable uh, feed-in tariffs so that mini-grids can potentially feed their energy back into the grid. Uh, but I also see very positive developments over the next five years in connecting the unconnected on the grid side. There are uh, millions of customers who, again, are within sight of the grid and, and cannot reach the grid because of the last mile financing challenges. So in the next five years, I really sincerely hope that we're able to make headway with connecting as many of the 26 million people who don't have reliable access uh, to power at uh, prices that they can afford. And I think that over the next five years, we will make uh, a lot of headway in that regard. Great. Well, thank you so much, Richard. You've been incredibly generous with your time and it's been great to hear your insights. Thank you for joining us on Distributing Solar. Great pleasure to be here. That was our conversation with Richard Harrison from Smart Power Myanmar. Smart Power Myanmar has a large range of articles and reports on their website and blog, which bring to life the value of decentralized energy in Myanmar. If you have any questions or comments, please visit us, as always, on our website at www.distributingsolar.com. We have notes from our podcast, useful sources and contact details available. We're particularly keen to speak with local entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia and Latin America. So if you have any recommendations for interview guests, please do get in touch. We look forward to hearing from you.